Matthew chapter 24 verse 3 says, speaking of Jesus, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? To understand what's going on in our world today, we must understand what has gone on in our world in the past. What has gone on in our world in the past is the reason for what God is going to do with our world in the future. Thus the reason for what is going on in our world today, thereby providing understanding as to what we are to do and how we are to respond to what's going on in our world today. Let me repeat that long sentence. To understand what's going on in our world today, we must understand what has gone on in our world in the past. What has gone on in our world in the past is the reason for what God is going to do with our world in the future. Thus the reason for what is going on in our world today. Thereby providing understanding as to what we are to do and how we are to respond to what's going on in our world today. Past, future, then present is the order required to understand what we're to do with regard to today's current events. Here's a simplified explanation. In the past, Lucifer, an archangel, led a revolt against God in heaven, rejecting God's grace, he and the angels who aligned with him were sentenced to the lake of fire and brimstone. He appealed his case, impugning the character of God. So God created man as a means of settling that conflict and vindicating his character. God's plan of grace is designed to settle Lucifer's appeal. God's plan for man's role in settling the angelic conflict was increasingly revealed in each of the ages previous to the church age, the age of innocence, the age of conscience, the age of civil government, the age of promise, the age of Israel, which was interrupted before the final seven years which are yet to come, as the church was established. While Lucifer, now known as Satan, is out on appeal, he continues in his attempt to thwart the plan of God. When he was told that the seed of the woman would bring about his defeat, resulting in his being cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, he concentrated his attack upon the seed of the woman. Ultimately, focusing upon the line of the promised Messiah, his perceived victory then came at the crucifixion of Christ. But what he falsely understood to be his victory became his defeat by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Satan, who has the power of death, according to Hebrews 2, chapter 14, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, was defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his first advent, Christ fulfilled the first four of the seven prophetic feasts of Israel. Passover, by his death, providing salvation, unleavened bread by his death, providing fellowship with God, and first fruits by his resurrection, and then Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit and the establishment 
of the church. Those first four were fulfilled in his first advent. Through the virgin birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, the glorious ascension, the present intercession, and the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the stage has been set for the future. In the future, when the number of church-age believers is equal to the number of fallen angels, Jesus will bring the spirits of those church-age believers who die before His return with Him and will resurrect the church-age believers, translating them into heaven. The judgment seat of Christ will occur in which the commendations for service and the commissions for the millennial and eternal kingdoms will be appointed. The church, which is described as the bride of Christ, will be prepared for the wedding to the bridegroom, Christ. She will be clothed in white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. When the church is taken to heaven at the rapture, the final seven years of the age of Israel will be completed here on earth in what has been identified as the tribulation as God brings judgment upon the earth and its evangelism by catastrophe. All of this is documented in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. During the final seven years of the Jewish administration before the return of Christ to establish the millennial kingdom, a ten-nation confederation will come to power and will seek to control the world, the king of the West. But there will be three other powers that will have the same objective, an eastern confederation of oriental nations, the king of the east, a confederation of Arabic nations, the king of the south, and a northern kingdom of Russia and her allies, the king of the north. All of those will be jockeying for power during that seven-year period. A dictator will rise to power in Israel, and the king of the west, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire, will sign a seven-year peace treaty with him. But three and a half years into the seven years, the dictator of the revived Roman Empire will break the treaty and demand to have his image placed in the rebuilt temple and demand to be worshipped as God. There are a multitude of catastrophic judgments that are going to take place on the earth. The seven seal scroll in the book of Revelation is the key to these judgments that God visits upon the earth. The first seal reveals the Antichrist. The second seal reveals war. The third seal reveals famine. The fourth seal reveals death. The fifth seal reveals martyrdom. The sixth seal reveals anarchy. The seventh seal reveals seven trumpet judgments. The seven trumpet judgments represent more judgments. Than beginning. The first trumpet releases hail and fire mingled with blood that burns up one third of the trees and one third of green grass. The second trumpet releases a great mountain burning with fire into the sea and a third part of the sea become blood and a third of the life in the sea dies and a third of the ships are destroyed. The third trumpet 
releases a great scar called Wormwood upon one-third of the rivers and the fountains of waters, resulting in the waters becoming bitter and causing the death of many. The fourth trumpet releases destruction upon one-third of the sun and one-third of the moon and causes darkness for one-third of the day and one-third of the night, and an angel announces three woes that are yet to come. The first trumpet sounds, and a star falls from heaven and takes the key to the bottomless pit and releases a horde of false angels that have been incarcerated there since they attempted to infiltrate humanity in the days of Noah. Their focus in their attack will be upon those who have refused to take the mark of the beast so that they actually desire to die but cannot die. Thus one woe is passed and two more woes are coming. The sixth trumpet sounds, and the command is given to loose the four angels that have been bound in the Euphrates River who have who were prepared for this time to kill one-third of the men upon the earth. They lead an army of 200,000,000. The seventh trumpet announces the reign of Christ forever, and records events leading up to the ultimate victory of Christ. The seven bowls of wrath also describe judgments of God being poured out upon the earth. The first bowl poured out results in a noisome and grievous sore coming upon all those who had received the mark of the beast. The second bowl is poured upon the sea, and the sea becomes like the blood of a dead man, and every living soul in the sea dies. The third bowl is poured upon the rivers and the fountains of water, and they all become blood. The fourth bowl is poured out upon the sun, and it's caused to scorch men with fire and with heat, so that they curse the name of God who has the power over these plagues. The fifth bowl is poured over the kingdom of the revived Roman Empire. The dictator and his kingdom are plunged into darkness, so dark it causes them to gnaw their tongues in pain, but they do not repent. They simply curse God instead. The sixth bowl is poured out on the great river Euphrates, causing it to dry up. That paves the way for the armies of the king of the east to advance to the battle of Armageddon. The seventh bowl is poured into the air, and a great voice out of the temple in heaven announces, It is done! And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and a great earthquake that has ever occurred since man has been upon the earth, great hailstorm, and every stone being about a hundred pounds each. These judgments will be followed by the second advent of Christ, to fulfill the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and to usher in the thousand-year millennial reign, which is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. These events are associated with the second advent of Christ and are vividly described in the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, 
and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azale. Yea, ye shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. It shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea in summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. There shall be one Lord and his name one. And the land shall be turned as a plain from Giba to Remnon south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and the inhabitant of her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate and from the tower of Haniel unto the king's winepresses. And men shall dwell in it. And there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and on his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel and a great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in those tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that they then have no rain. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite the heathen that come up, uh, that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to 
keep the feast of tabernacles. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judea shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day there shall no more be the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit during this time, and this thousand-year millennial fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles will close with the release of Satan and his final failure to overcome God, as documented in Revelation 27-10. through 10. The earth and its atmosphere will then be destroyed. Isaiah verse 34, 4 uh, chapter 34, verse 4, And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a fallen fig from the fig tree. Peter records it this way, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the citizens of the elements rather shall melt with fervent heat. That then raises the question. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? The past, the future. Now let's look at the present. Understanding the past and being given information about the future, we're now faced with a question that Peter raised. What matter of men, what manner of women ought we to be in this present age? God has given us an outline of time. The doctrine of dispensations lays that out for us. He has revealed to us his plan for the future in the book of Revelation. He's provided us with signs in Bible prophecy. He's set us apart for service as members of the body of Christ through spiritual gifting. He's provided us with basic instruction, Bible doctrine. He's empowered us to function the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He has commissioned each of us to be His representatives. We are ambassadors for Christ. He is going to evaluate our performance at the judgment seat of Christ. So here's a list of things that God said would be going on in our world today and that appear on our nightly news. False teachers infiltrate the church. Homosexuality becomes an acceptable lifestyle. Earthquakes are occurring more frequently. 
Personal stress has reached suicidal proportions. Wars and rumors of wars are everyday news. Ten Commandments and morality have been abandoned. Empty religious systems dominate our communities. Bible doctrine has been replaced with storytelling and fables. Viruses and diseases have allowed governments to incarcerate citizens. Denial of biblical events have discredited the voice of God. Marriage has been redefined and corrupted. There's been a tremendous increase in famines. Increase in vegetarianism is attempting to reestablish God's menu for Israel. The cry for peace at any cost has impacted our safety. There's an international controversy over Jerusalem. The increase of knowledge threatens common sense and logic. The people of the world have become pleasure seekers. They made tremendous increase in travel and has made the earth a smaller place. We have new means by which to preach the gospel. Christians are increasingly hated and persecuted. Our youth have become rebellious. Men mock God and His Word. Therefore, it's time for Christians to respond to these situations. Throughout history, God has used people to accomplish His task, and today is no exception. The list that we have just cited are events that are prophesied in the Word of God. We need to look at today's current events through the lens of God having given us an outline of time in the doctrine of dispensations, and He has revealed to us His plan for the future in Revelation, and He has provided us with signs in Bible prophecy, and He has set apart, set us apart for service as members of the body of Christ in spiritual giving. He has provided us with basic instruction in Bible doctrine. He has empowered us to function with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He has commissioned each of us to be His representative as ambassadors for Christ, and He is going to evaluate our performance at the judgment seat of Christ. As Peter raises the question, what sort of men ought we to be? Israel failed in their assignment, but they provided a structure through which the Messiah would come. We live in a world that was created by God, but it was farmed out to man to manage. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. In Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 33, we have this record of our Lord's conversation 
with his followers. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and he let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants, beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandman saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he say unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Church age believers are God's husbandmen replacements for Israel, but today they are identified as sojourners. The Feast of Pentecost marked the end of the Jewish primary harvest. There would be a harvest of summer fruits, but Pentecost marked the end of their primary harvest. Prophetically, it spoke of the end of their primary administration Though they will gather summer fruits during the seven years of tribulation, but they were replaced as God's administrators on the earth on the day of Pentecost in 30 A.D. Believers of the church age are not identified either as Jews or Gentiles. We're identified as sojourners and understand that role then is that which will enable us to understand what we are to do in response to today's current events. Understanding this doctrine will help us understand and establish our purpose among the Americans. First Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for God's own possession, that you might show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were no people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your behavior seemly, among the Gentiles, that wherein they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. First Peter 2.10 instructs us concerning our behavior as we live out our role as strangers and pilgrims, sojourners. He establishes the foundation of that behavior for us in verse 11, and then he provides specific detail in the verses that follow. The foundation is that we are to keep ourselves from those lusts which are manifested in the natural man. We are no longer natural men. We are spiritual creatures. 
we become a new race. We have a different citizenship and we are not to emulate those of the world alongside of whom we are to dwell. In verse 11, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Peter uses two terms, strangers and pilgrims. The word stranger, paroikos in the Greek, identifies those who are not living in their own country. The word pilgrim is translated from the Greek word paridamos, and it means foreigners dwelling alongside citizens in order to do business for their king. Peter tells us to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. There are three basic areas of fleshly lust that are identified in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We must note that the phrase fleshly lust is not limited to the lust of the flesh, sensuality, or satisfaction of the senses, but this word fleshly identifies the source and refers to all three areas of lust, sensuality, materialism, and ego. We're commanded to abstain from these. These are the things that nullify our witness and destroy our churches and leave citizens of this world without a proper representation of the kingdom of God. The lust of the flesh is sensuality. That is, the satisfaction of the senses, and it covers a broad spectrum of sins. It's related to touch, taste, smell, see, and hear, the five empirical senses that we have. We're to abstain from those things. The lust of the eyes identifies materialism. It's the inappropriate ordering of priorities with a focus on the accumulation and control of material assets or things. We to abstain from making material things our priority. The pride of life relates to ego. It's the elevation of oneself in the pursuit of approbation and praise, in the pursuit of power and control. We're to abstain from the idea of an overinflated self-worth. An expanded translation of verse 11 should read this way. You who are loved with a self-sacrificial love, I continually call you to my position as those who are not living in their own country and as foreigners dwelling alongside citizens in order to do business. Keep on making it your purpose to participate in keeping yourself from the strong fleshly desires which continually pitch themselves in strategic battle array against the norms and the standards of the soul. So look with me at the doctrine of sojourners. Peter introduces this subject in 1 Peter chapter 1, then 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethany. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. The doctrine of the sojourner deals with the fact that the believer has had a change of citizenship. He is now a sojourner. That is, an individual who resides in a foreign country alongside the local citizens to do business for his king. The reference here then is to the believer that dwells on the earth as a foreign ambassador for Christ, as we find in Second Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. When we find these words, elect and sojourner together, electois and paritipedemois, we are to understand them as a reference to our role in ministry, to our service to God. The doctrine of election indicates that we are in the chosen one, that is, in Christ, and thus we are the elect of God. The doctrine of the sojourner teaches that we are strangers here on planet earth, our citizenship is in heaven, but we have an appointment to service here. We're to recognize our purpose for sojourning. The identification of our spiritual gifts will direct us in knowing what our job is. And then we are to commit ourselves to that purpose as our single objective of life. Most believers live out their lives without ever understanding why they're here. For many people, life is a matter of trying to get from the cradle to the grave with the greatest happiness the least amount of pain, and the most toys. For others, there is a sincere attempt to make some contribution to society and live a heritage. However, for the believer, there must be a recognition of his or her spiritual purpose for remaining here after we have established our citizenship in heaven. Let's summarize in four basic statements. Number one, Every believer has a unique ministry. Each of us is uniquely crafted by God. We have distinct personalities, looks, and identity traits. We form part of the body of Christ, and as such, we have a specific role in our representation of the kingdom of God. Every believer has a unique ministry. Secondly, we note that spiritual gifts identify or determine our ministry. There are nine specific gifts that are provided throughout the church age that enable believers to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The combination of gifts and the individual measure of each gift results in our maintaining our uniqueness in our ministry for God. Thirdly, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. The Levitical sacrificial system has been replaced in our present age. God no longer requires burnt offerings, meal offerings, peace offerings, trespass offerings, and sin offerings. Today God desires our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, and that our presentation is our priestly responsibility to do that daily. Fourthly, our priorities are to be based on personal ministry. 
Where we live, what we own, what we do, where we go is to be directed by our personal ministry to which God has called us. Contrary to the popular phrase, it is not all about me. It's all about Him and our representation of Him among the heathen of the world. In our text, in 1 Peter 2.11, there's a double emphasis. We're not living in our own country, and as foreigners, we're living alongside the citizens of this world doing business for our king. In order to do that, we must abstain from strong fleshly desires that are at war with norms and standards of our soul. We're to maintain a pattern of behavior that is representative of our country of our being citizens of the kingdom of God. The foundation of the sojourner is established in verse 11, and in verse 12, we're given the details of behavior. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Look with me at this verse a little closer. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. That word conversation refers to our behavior, our manner of life. Wherever we live, we're to make it a matter of principle to maintain a behavior pattern that is compatible with our purpose for living here on the earth after our salvation. That purpose to do business for the kingdom of God among those that are not citizens of God's kingdom. The purpose of this behavior is stated then in the next phrase, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Unbelievers frequently refer to Christians as evildoers. In the early church, Christians were seen as extremists and identified as evildoers. Today, Christians are also seen as an extremist group. And unbelievers observe the behavior of Christians and identify them as such. The legalistic Jew often interpreted the liberty of Christians under grace as being evil. A little further down in this epistle, Peter warns against the danger of using our liberty and security in Christ as a cloak of maliciousness. So Peter tells us that we are to maintain the proper behavior before these unbelievers that while they now speak against us as evildoers, as a result of our proper behavior, they have the potential for they themselves becoming believers. Look at the phrase, that they may glorify God. This is in the subjunctive mood. Doxa sin is subjunctive. It establishes a potential. So our proper behavior before them gives them the potential for glorifying God as they see our good works. Our works is from the Greek word ergon, that is our assigned employment or assigned task. 
and refers to the specific and individual work that God has assigned each of us in the day of visitation. That word visitation, episcopies, identifies a formal inspection that's held in order for them to give an accounting. Judgment is coming. And we're here to provide the potential for earth dwellers to become part of the eternal kingdom of God. Our godly living before them is no guarantee, but it provides a potential for them too to give glory to God at their time of formal judgment. An expanded translation of verse 12 reads this way, Constantly make it your principle to continually maintain your matter of life, characteristic of that which is well adapted to its purpose and circumstance in the presence of the ethnics, in order that in the very thing that they presently continue to speak against you as an evildoer, as a result of constantly observing you performing the tasks that you've been employed to perform in a manner that's adapted to its purpose, then they have the potential for glorifying God in a day of formal inspection held in order for them to give an accounting. So what in the world is going on? To understand, again, what is going on in our world today, we have to understand what has gone on in the world in the past. What has gone on in the world is the past is the reason for what God is going to do with our world in the future. Thus, the reason for what is going on in the world today, thereby providing an understanding as to what we are to be doing and how we are to respond to what's going on in the world. So we've summarized the past and the future as it's revealed in the Word of God. Those summaries have provided us the information we need to understand what we're today today to be doing and how we are to respond to what's going on. We've seen that the church-age believers are sojourners in a world that is estranged from its creator. We're foreigners, not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals to do business for our king. That sounds simple enough, but it's complicated by the fact that we have a double citizenship and responsibilities related to the government in this foreign land where we live. So in the studies ahead, we're going to attempt to find a biblical balance and understand what we are to do in both of these realms. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God bless.